Hey everybody, welcome back to uh, Startup Sales. I know we've been uh, been away for about a month or just a little over a month now. I uh, hope everybody had a good uh, Christmas and holiday season and 2019 is off to a good start. Anyways, uh, we've got a really good uh, lineup so far uh, for 2019. We have uh, Mark Smith. Uh, he's going to be talking about if it's a good idea to have an SDR and how to determine if you need an inside sales team or not. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Daniel Disney. He's a social selling expert, and he's going to be talking about how a startup could utilize LinkedIn to generate sales. We're going to be speaking to Ariel Fickelstein, who's a uh, mass, massive investor and, and coach and, and advisor to early stage startups. And he's going to be talking about how, how to use the sales learning curve and your go-to-market strategy uh, to, to really launch your business and really take it off to the next level. Uh, Steve Richard is also going to be coming on. He's going to be talking about how to provide feedback to your team without putting up defenses and also the importance of recording your calls and your demos and how to utilize that. We're going to be speaking of Jason with Jason Smith of Clue. He talks about where to start with sales. Uh, should you be going with SMB or should you be going to enterprise? And Today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Mark Roberge, the uh, former CRO of HubSpot, the guy responsible for, I'm sure the whole team is responsible, but one of the guys responsible for bringing HubSpot to the, the monster it is today, uh, from no sales up to hundreds, 100 million plus uh, in revenue. Mark was there uh, leading the team for that, and he's going to be discussing today what, did, what is product market fit? and go to market, uh, how to define them both for your company, how to scale your sales team, and how to communicate with your prospects based on where in the buyer journey they are. So it's going to be a great episode with Mark. Next week, we're going to be meeting also with Mark Smith uh, and really looking forward to this new season, this new 2019 uh, with a lot of new interviews coming up for this podcast. Uh, we've also changed the lineup, so it's going to be uh, video as well. So if you're listening to this on your podcast app, you could actually go to startupsales.io and you'll find the in each episode, there's the full video. So you could actually watch and see the uh, people that we're speaking with uh, in the interview. So enjoy the show with Mark Roberge, and I uh, really hope that you find... A lot of value in this one and the rest of the season. Thank you. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, uh, we've got Mark with us. I'm really excited. Uh, as everybody knows who Mark Roberge is, uh, he was responsible for uh, one of the people responsible for bringing HubSpot up to the giant it is today from uh, bringing the first client to, uh, I don't know, you're growing over 100 million ARR uh, as you were there. So, and you're still a board member, I think, correct? On the advisory board, yep. Yep, great. So, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you bet. I'm great to, great to be here. Excited to meet you and engage with the audience. Lovely. So let's jump into the first question, and it has to do with your book. Uh, when I first became a manager uh, and wanted to start hiring a team, uh, I used I read your book, and it was just perfect timing. And I actually used your formulas. But this is one of the biggest problems uh, early stage founders have because they're technically t uh, most of the time they're technical people, and they don't know what to look for in a salesperson. So what would you say is like? during the interview process is the most important thing to ask and what is it that you're supposed to be looking for? Okay. Yeah. So there's a couple of things to unpack there. I think, um, 
the biggest mistake if I try to channel the founders that I work with, the biggest mistake that they make is they overweight um, domain experience. Like they overweight trying to find someone like I'm, I'm, you know, uh, in this type of sector selling to this type of buyer. And they just think that that's essentially all they evaluate. Mm-hmm. You know, they just think, Oh, I found perfect person. They, they've been selling to this type of buyer, this type of product. And they don't evaluate the quality of the salespersonship. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, that's number one. And so, well, then what should I look at? Um, you know, really it's, um, curiosity is, is a, is a big one that I, if I were to try to coach a founder on, on how to hire a good salesperson, like so much of the, especially in the early stages of selling, um, is about asking, you know, building enough trust with that buyer so that they're willing to open up and asking great questions to uncover the buyer's perspective so that you can figure out if you're a fit and if so, how to pitch, uh, the buyer on your product. Cause you could, you could usually describe your product in 20 different ways. Yeah. And if you just guess, <laughs> that's like throwing darts in the dark and hoping that you get it right. It's just much better if you could understand their perspective and then tell the story that aligns best. It's not line or manipulation. You're just trying to connect and help this person. As long as you're truthful that they should buy your product, then you're doing everyone a great service. So that's really like what, well, how I would unpack great salespersonship skills that you could evaluate on and trying to move away from, um, you know, trying to move away from just, hey, they worked in my industry and sold to this particular buyer. I think the other comment I would make is um, your first hire is way different than your 10th. And this is very important for your audience, you know, the founders, the, the seed funded, the, the series A funded companies. Like your 10th hire, you're hopefully going to have your blueprint on how it works. You'll understand who your buyer is. You'll understand what, sales process works. You'll, you'll have a, a deck on the top 10 objections and how to handle them. The CRM will be built. It'll be guiding you on how many calls and who to call, what an SQL is. And like, there's just, you'll have a, a manager to <laughs> coach you on how to do it. Like you have the ropes already. It's going to go out there and follow the process. And like, I want to make a lot of money. I want to make a lot of calls. I want to connect with a lot of buyers. That is a terrible first hire. Yeah. Because you don't have any of that. Right. So your first hire is almost like it's almost like a mix between a product manager and a salesperson. Right. Like great product managers, they're just so good at distilling lots of information and making sense of it. Like they're great product managers are are hearing feedback from the customers and hearing feedback from the competition and hearing feedback from the engineers. And they're just like they can distill it into a a theme and a message. And that's really what you're at. Even if you have a couple customers or a product that's working and you think you know what it does, like you, you don't know, you don't really, you haven't really got go to market fit as I call it at this point. And so that's your first salesperson is they need to go out there and not just like pitch what you were, what you told them and say, it's not working. They need to go out and uncover the perspective of the market and bring that information back to you to help you continue to iterate on your product, your message, and your sales process and who you should be selling to, to really crystallize that. So that's probably like the two big mistakes and, and, and approaches is be really, really crystal clear on what this person is going to do. The first hire is going to help you build the process. So they probably don't have to make $100 a day. But they also like, they have to be different from a product manager in the sense that they have to be comfortable selling. They have to be comfortable asking for money, asking for the order, like, you know, just those aspects. But they don't have to be like the 80 hour, you know, 80 calls a day. I want to make 200% of quota. Where's my comp plan? That's like the wrong person for the first one. And then really just lean into the curiosity. And, And I like, I really like to do role plays around that, you know, make, you can tell them in advance. It doesn't matter. Just say here, I'm going to be a lead. Here's what a lead looks like. 
And I want you to be a salesperson for my company. And let's, let's role play that. If they, if they show up and like throw up on you for like 20 minutes with all the information <laughs> on the website, like you don't have a good discovery person. Yeah. Versus if they come in and ask really great open-ended questions and listen and build on top of them, that's a skill that's hard to find that you want especially early in your company. Absolutely. I, I found one question that really works for me well when uh, hiring somebody is uh, just in more of the small talk is asking them what was the last thing they learned that was really interesting. That's cool. Because that shows that they're, they're out there wanting to learn, wanting to grow just for themselves. Not to, It doesn't have to be sales. It could be about whatever it is that they're interested in. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so... Let's move on to the next step because uh, in, in your book, you talk about uh, the next thing is, is coaching and training uh, the person. But a problem is, is many of the founders, uh, as I said before, are technical. How do they coach the first salesperson without having the experience necessary? Yeah, I mean, it is, um, it is challenging as a founder. I mean, the best the best approach in this setting where you're, you're very small um, is <clears throat> I would use what I call daily film reviews. And so, you know, what's really cool about hiring your first salesperson is you are going to significantly increase the touch points, the touch points with the market between your company and, and your target buyer. Like up until this point, I'm assuming you've you've run through agile development and lean startup, and you you built uh, MVP, and through that process, you you have been really in touch with customers to figure out how they're thinking and and what they want to have built. But now you're going to hire a seller who's going to like hopefully talk to a dozen customers a day, yeah. and so you want to leverage that as a non salesperson founder and essentially organize a daily film review, say from like 5 to 6 p.m. every day, where um, the, your seller is going to record one of their conversations and um, bring it to the meeting. And you'll sit around for half an hour, 45 minutes, and just listen to the call. And, you know, basically what you're testing is all the theories you have on the table. You have theories at this point of, who is in your addressable market and who's not. You have theories on what the buyer journey looks like. What, it, what do they talk about before they even know about your product? How do they describe the problems or opportunities that you're looking to address? What have they looked at before to solve it? And why wasn't that sufficient? And how would they make this decision? Right? We, we hopefully have like a theory as to how that that buyer journey may progress for our buyer. And hopefully in this sales process, we've uncovered that information through our discovery process. And then once I understood their perspective, how can I align my presentation of my product with that perspective? So that, that's a lot to like unpack and just listen to. Did you do that well, right? Yeah. I don't think you necessarily need a background in sales to reflect as a team on that. It's not like the salesperson's on, tr on trial and you're just attacking them. We're just asking questions like, you know, do you, do you think we uncovered their pain well enough? And did it align with what we're thinking about for our buying journey? And maybe, we, you know, I would hope that like, if you have someone in marketing, they're sitting in the room. Maybe your head of product is sitting in the room. Like th this is a team effort to help us uncover this. So that that's really how I would handle it as a founder. Is I would just orchestrate a daily film review with the intent of using that increase in pace of touch points with the market um, to codify who my buyer is, how they buy, and how we should sell to them. Yeah. I think that's a, an amazing approach. And, and I like that you say to do it daily. Uh, so many people would say, oh, once a week, and then they kind of skip it daily. Is, it's so important to be in touch with the, what the buyer is actually saying as well for, for everybody so this is, It's just the frequency of that represents your pace of learning. Yeah. Right? Like no one, there is no startup in the world. There's no seed funded startup in the world who like builds their MVP, has a product, hires their first salesperson, and they know exactly who they should sell to. 
they know exactly how that buyer buys. Like they just don't know it. We got to figure that out. Yeah. And if we do it daily or weekly or monthly, all that means is delaying figuring that stuff out. Terrific. All right. So when you are talking to some of these earlier stage companies and, and helping them out, what is something that they ask you a lot of the time that makes you feel that they're focusing on the wrong objectives? Hmm. All the time. <laughs> um, how to sell fast, like how to hire salespeople or increase price or increase like questions that they're way not ready for. Mm-hmm. Right. So like that is what I see almost all the time is this it's just premature growth. It's just like a lack of understanding of what needs to be put in place to start growing fast. And I think like we've made progress. We've made progress since like the, you know, the turn of the century, I suppose, (laughs) where we've moved away from raising a million dollars, like sitting ourselves in a room by ourselves with our engineers and building a product for a year and hoping that it sells. We've moved from that, like lean startup, agile, great. But like now what happens is we build this product, we're in touch with our customer, MVP. Great. Now I've got five customers. They love it. I got a case study on them. My product's bug free. Let's hire 12 reps next, you know, let's raise $5 million. We'll hire 12 reps next month and go. (laughs) And you know what happens 99% of the time? They're firing 12 reps a year later and they raised a lot of money. Yeah. And so there's just like premature relationship with growth. And this is what a lot of the work that I've been doing as an investor, a board member, even as an operator, as an academic, is just understanding the framework on how to think about growth. And and it really, for me, comes down to product market fit, then go to market fit, then growth and moat. Mm-hmm. And so like underneath that are specific goals. Like product market fit to me is not, it's not like five customers who love my product and it's bug free. Product market for me is we are consistently signing up customers. And two months later, their usage of our product the value they're getting our product, like 80% of them are getting that value out of our product. You know, like I need, I need something that shows me like one, two, three months in, whatever I promised them during the sales process, there are signs that that's happening. They've set it up. They're using it every day. They're like, I've, a lot of times in entrepreneurship, they call this the aha moment. Like for Slack, it's like 2000 messages across like a three person team for Dropbox. It's like, one file with one share with one folder or something for HubSpot. It was five features out of the 25 feature platform. Like everyone has a little bit of a different definition, but it's quantified and it happens early in the customer life cycle and product market fit in my mind is when you sign up customers in a month or a quarter and like 80, 70%, 80% of it hit that number. So that's like number one is like, I've seen so many companies scale, like even like friggin you know, Zenefits, I think, to some degree, scaled to a big company without this. Groupon, I think, scaled to a public company without ever figuring this out. And so, like, it's just so important today to lead with customer success generation, especially since, like, every customer has a big megaphone called social media, and they're going to they're gonna write reviews, and they're going to tell everyone, you just can't build a business without it. So that's number one. Yeah. Product market fit as measured by customer success. And then number two is go to market fit, which is the unit economics. Like, are you, can you generate customer success profitably? Right. Cause I don't want to scale a business with bleeding money. <laughs> right. So in SaaS, we talk about payback period and LTV to cat. Right. So in the first step, go to market fit. I don't care. Honestly, I do not care if it costs you $20,000 to acquire a customer that's worth $10,000 to you. As long as you could show that they're going to create value, it's really hard to invent a new idea and to show success and value to the majority of people. So throw everything in the kitchen sink at that person. You're the CEO, fly there, get them set up, educate them, try to make it happen at all costs. Yeah. But once we move to go to market fit, which is defined by UN economics, 
we have to do that profitably. So this is the time where we're over here, we're working on onboarding, signing up the right people. Over here, this is when your compensation plan matters, your pricing model matters, the efficiency of your sales funnel matters, your demand gen matters. So once I have that in place, customer success, venue and economics, now I can move to growth and moat. Okay. And so number one, moat is included because if you start scaling and it's working, copycats are coming. <laughs> People are going to raise money and copy you. Yeah. Someone is going to go out there and pitch your product for half the price. And you need a reason that when you go head to head with them, people still buy you even though you're more expensive. So you have to have a vision toward moat at that point or you're going to get wiped out. Okay. And then it's growth. So now all I'm doing is like, okay, we're ready now. So let's start adding. It's not add 17 reps next month. It's add, let's start adding one salesperson per month. And let's do that for six months. And let's watch our unit economics and let's watch our customer success. And if those don't break, let's go faster. Yeah. Let's go to two a month. But if they start to break, let's level out or slow down, fix it, and then go fast again. Right? So there's a, there's a whole thought process there, I think, that lends itself to a lot of decisions as a founder on how we grow, when are we ready for growth, and how fast can we go that a lot of people are just skipping over. Yeah, I so many people want to just put their their foot on the pedal and and just go. <laughs> and they're impatient. Yes. Yeah. All right. Talking about being impatient, so many founders uh have talked to me about wanting to just start outbound and and getting an outbound process going cuz they want to just hit the road and they want to start selling. They want to hire a salesperson to do outbound. Now, they want to do this rather than putting together a good content marketing strategy. And I know you have a very strong opinion on that. Uh, can you dive into what your opinion is on content, content marketing versus outbound? Yeah, it might not be as strong as you think. I just think like I often have to take a particular stance because people are biased toward the way they used to sell and underappreciative where things have moved. So <laughs> in general, from a high level, you've got to map your demand gen strategy, outbound or inbound or sell through partners with how your buyer buys, right? So like as an example, outbound works really badly with engineers because a lot of engineers don't have a phone. Like they don't even have a phone at their office. So how are you going to cold call them? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could cold email, but like, they just don't, they don't really like salespeople at all. Like they really hate salespeople. So like for engineers, like they like to go online and solve problems themselves. They like to research their intellects, right? And so content works awesome for engineers mm -hmm. because they're out there, they're collaborating and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, versus like if you're trying to sell to like senior citizens, it's not as, you know, their, their usage of the internet is possibly, I haven't seen the data recently, but arguably lower than say someone younger and their tolerance for, you know, traditional ways of communication is higher. Yeah. Right. So like, that's just an extreme example of matching your strategy with your buyer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now to your point, I often take a bolder stance for inbound versus outbound because people typically um, underappreciate this shift in buying. The fact that what the internet has done for the buyer, that you, know, you used to have to talk to a salesperson, you had to, to figure out what a product did, to buy the product. That is no longer true. For almost every product, you can Google and find out something about it whether it's reading about the company on their website, reviews by customers, and that's where most buyers start, right? And so by the time they're engaging with us, they're already down the cycle. Mm -hmm. And so if you invest in outbound, you're first off, you're not even catching those people that have started a search. 
And second off, you're not really influencing the dialogue and you're letting like other people dictate what's, what's talked about, about you. Versus if you do inbound, you've created a competitive advantage for yourself. You have aligned yourself where the buyers are actually starting the process. And now whether you fulfill the process or you transition that interest to a salesperson, you're, you're in a better position. And I think what's hard is like, people just don't understand how do I do that? And I think the simple starting point is appreciating the power of a journalist in today's demand gen world. You know, the second hire we made at HubSpot in our marketing team was a reporter for the New York Times. That was our second marketer. And so just that's something you could think about as a founder is you do not have time to be your content production machine. You don't. In the same way, you don't have time to be your only engineer. You don't have time to be your only seller. You do not have time to be your only blogger, nor does your engineers, nor do your salespeople. They can help, but you should hire that. If you find that your buyer is starting their process online, educating themselves, then that needs to be a big part of your demand gen strategy. And you need to hire that writer who you then can team up with yourself to do an interview and suck all the great thoughts out of your brain under the digital page. Team them up with your engineer, team them up with your salesperson. Let them do what they're good at, which is interviewing and writing and leverage the thought leadership that's at your company. That's really how you engage and start in this process of a modern demand generation machine. Wow. That's uh, have them come and, and, and take the story from you in, in a face-to-face conversation and, and actually put it in a good blog post or uh, smaller bite-sized uh, feeds. Yeah. So it's like, oftentimes when folks are hiring this journalist, they over, they over obsessed with someone that like wrote in their space, mm-hmm. which usually isn't necessary. Like usually what is a good, a good journalist can sit down with a PhD in blockchain, knowing nothing about blockchain, interview them and translate that interview into a piece that's beautiful to read. That's what you need to hire for, right? They don't need to have that thought leadership. That's what you have. And so just, just finding that person and then setting up like, you know, a weekly conversation, like every Friday at 9am, someone different is going to be interviewed. And like, you know, that could be a 30 minute hour conversation. And to your point, that can, that leads to a lot of content, right? Like if, if the journalist interviews the CEO about a particular topic for an hour, that's not a blog article, that's an ebook. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's like a three to five page ebook, which can also be supported by three or four blog articles. And it could also generate dozens of social media posts. So each social media post is a quote or a trend, a stat, that links to the blog article. And then at the end of each blog article is a call to action to download the ebook that's put behind a landing page so we can start capturing some leads. So then you can start to see how like, wow, one hour of my time as CEO and a couple days of this content producer produce all that content, like an ebook, a couple blog articles, dozens of social media messages. And I do that every week. It just creates a beautiful demand gen machine. Wow. So the, the, the journalist will actually write, you'll set, you'll tell the journalist, okay, I want about uh, 10 Twitter posts. I want like three or four blog posts and I want an ebook out of, out of this conversation. And yeah, then, typically at the so starting point, that's what they're good at. As you grow as a company, the people that are writing the ebooks could sometimes be different than the people that write the blogs could sometimes be different than the people that run the social media. But when you're like a five or 10 person startup, that's usually one person. And you can find that one person to like, uh, that's a very, it's a similar enough skill set that you can, you can find an athlete that, that can handle that. Yeah. Uh, that's terrific. Now, <clears throat> what about another part of, uh, of content marketing, uh, as far as being more, I guess it's more social selling, but 
being engaged on these forums, being engaged on LinkedIn, uh, yeah. depending on where your audience is. What do you? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point because online and social, it's like it's not a one-way conversation, and people can smith, sniff it when you're, uh, I would call maybe like a one-way egotistical brand, right? So it's like, you know, you can't just be, if you look at your LinkedIn business page or your Twitter feed or whatever it is, it can't just be about you, right? Like you, I often say you want about a third to be about you and two thirds to be supporting other people's stuff in the domain, right? So like, if you take a step back and think about, okay, what are we, you know, what are we selling? You know, what, what, what are we, what's our value prop? So let's say that we're selling, you know, in the, um, what's the company I'm working with now. So like, so like in the HR space, let's say we're selling like talent management and recruitment stuff. So like, even though our product has a very particular value proposition, we want to draw we want to draw a broad circle around who is it that we want to attract. We want to attract, you know, engineering VPs, sales VPs, HR people who are thinking about how to recruit talent and keep talent. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, what do I want my online presence to represent? Everything that they're thinking about. How to how to source people, how to ask great questions. Should I use like psychology tests? Um like, how do I set up a great culture? How do I think about pay versus other merits? Like, there's a whole st- bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with my product, but it's the stuff they want to read about. So yeah. I start producing content about that. But I also want to follow all the other thought leaders online that talk about that stuff. I want to follow the authors that write about that stuff. I want to follow the journalists that write about that stuff. I want to follow non-competitive companies that also blog. And I want to retweet their stuff. I want to post their stuff on my LinkedIn profile. I want to comment on their blog. And all that's going to do is it's going to attract their attention to you. And they'll start commenting on your stuff. They'll start promoting your stuff to their audience. They might even ask you one day to write a guest blog post on their blog. They'd They'd love for you to do that. You'd love to do that. It's just another chance to get your brand in there. So you really have to be, you know, a third about you two-thirds about other people you know reading their stuff and engaging and that attracts the audience in i think it sounds amazing but i am a busy ceo how how do i do this (laughs) well this is where you can also leverage your journalist hire your athlete i mean you could have someone eventually you'll have someone separate that's running social media and it's their job to be representing the company dialogue here or surfacing it to you Right. So Adam, like, listen, I just saw this really important blog article. It seems really in line with some of the messaging you've been saying on stage or within our, would you mind just posting a comment along these lines? So you make it really easy for the CEO and that's important to do. Yeah. This is an important dialogue and the CEO should be out there or, or so, so this person can be definitely doing some of it on their own, but like watching and, and directing it to the right people. And I will tell you though, even as like CRO of HubSpot, where I've got 450 people working for me and a big quota to chase, I still spent like at least two hours a week reading up on the thought leaders in the space and participating. Yeah. And like part of it was just because like that was what we were promoting HubSpot. But like, even if it was like in a different sector, like I've got to stay up to speed on this stuff and I sort of have to be part of the dialogue, yeah. right? So, so like, I'm not saying it's a 40-hour-a-week job, but, like, to not do it for one or two hours a week, it's I'm not sure you're, you're staying on the brink of what, what you're responsible for. Yeah, your priorities uh, need to be tweaked. Yeah. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I want to jump ship a little bit uh, and talk about more of the once you actually have a prospect engaged with you uh or you you've got a new inbound lead that signed up for your ebook a lot of founders have come to me uh and and they're looking for how do i write these campaigns how do i write these first emails 
what are your thoughts on that? How do you, how do you suggest people start writing emails? So emails in terms of um, when someone's downloaded an ebook and they give you their email address and now you want to engage with them as a salesperson or as a founder? As, as a salesperson founder, but not as marketing. Yes, exactly. So this kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier around the film reviews and understanding your buyer and understand their buyer journey. Okay, so a really basic buyer journey could be something like awareness, consideration, decision, success. They go through four stages. At the awareness stage, they have no idea what you do. They are just, they have a problem and they're trying to figure out how to solve it and they're trying to figure out how to define their problem. Consideration, they know how they've defined their problem now and now they're just looking at what solutions are out there, like different categories. Should I hire a consultant? Should I buy some software? Should I solve it internally? And what are the pros and cons? Decision, they've made a decision on a category and now they're gonna make a decision on a solution. So we know we want to buy software. Um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at for the cheapest one and the one that's been around the most. And now we're evaluating the vendors that are out there. And then success means we've bought it. Now we need to bring it to life. Mm-hmm. And this is how we're measuring success. And this is what we need to do. So the biggest mistake I see to your question, Adam, around, all right, great. Someone just went to the blog. They download the ebook. I have their email. What should I send them? And most people are like, you know, Adam, thank you so much for coming to our blog. We have a state-of-the-art product around talent management and recruitment. I'd love to show you a demo of our product. Would you be available tomorrow at 12 o'clock for a demo? That is so misaligned <laughs> with the buyer stage. Yeah. They're just figuring out their problem. The next step is not look at a demo of a product they need to be educated on the problem they need to know the different ways to solve it so a better outreach is just you know i you know adam i saw that you downloaded our ebook on this particular topic um you know and i also noticed that you work for uh you know a ten thousand person um you know real estate company um you know, here's, here's, I just pulled a study that we did on this particular segment that probably might help you think about, you know, talent management in your sector. Um, would you have 20 minutes tomorrow so I can walk you through the, the behind the scenes information on this study? You know what I mean? It's like, it's just more around the education component. Yeah. Make, you know, hey, we offer, if you'd like, we offer a 30 minute assessment where we have evaluated 200 companies. And in 30 minutes, we can, if we just gather a couple of information from you, I can benchmark you against those companies so you can see how you fit against your peers and what your peers have done to improve. That's way more enticing than to see a product demo. <laughs> right? And so, like, so now I've moved into that stage of like, why did you come? What, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Why? How you're defining that problem? Why is that problem so important now? Have you tried to solve it before? This is all getting me through the awareness and consideration stage. And then I can flip around. Now it's time. So, so at that point, I'm through that conversation. I might say, okay, Adam, thank you so much for the 30 minutes you spent with me today. Um, if I were to just try to recap what I've learned to make sure it's accurate. You have a 10,000 person accounting firm. And for whatever reason, over the last year, your attrition rate has doubled. And it's become, it's cost you twice as much to hire new talent. And you think it's because there's been an explosion of tech companies in your region. And it's been more difficult for you to compete both on the retention and recruitment of the talent in your region. And what, if you don't solve this problem over the next six months, it's just getting worse and some severe financial implications are happening for your company that could threaten profitability. So if I could, do I have that right? And if I could show you a solution that has helped peers like you 
to offset this trend of talent recruitment and reduction, then that would be of great interest to you. And in fact, you may even spend $50,000 a year to solve that problem. I mean, it's like, I, you don't even know what I have yet, but it's just like the fact that I've asked super smart questions about this situation. It seems like I've been there before. I've dropped a couple nuggets along the way that have been thought provoking. I just soft closed you. I mean, you just told me like that you nailed my problem. And of course I would spend 50,000 a year to solve it. So now all I have to do is show you that my, my, my my product solves that problem. But at least I know what game I'm, t- I'm playing at an extreme level. And I know that you have to buy this in the next two months because I know exactly how much, how you're bleeding. But I'm not trying to be manipulative. I'm just trying to be helpful. And I want to tell the story in the right way. So to, to circle it back, Adam, that outreach email needs to be aligned with the stage the buyer's at. And 90% of the time, it's not to see a demo. Uh, it's uh it's fantastic and also uh you you got the the already approval of the price they already agreed to your price uh subconsciously as you move <laughs> down the discovery call but yes the outreach is more of an offer on assessment yes. education peer benchmarking that's the stage that they're at yeah fantastic um <clears throat> you You've built a, a team of hundreds of salespeople. Now, how much of their success, maybe not their success, but also any major, bigger company's uh, success with sales, how much of that do you think comes from the salesperson's uh, ability to articulate and communicate properly? And how much of uh, their success is based off of their, the system that's been built? Yeah. That's a good question. I've never had that one before. <laughs> Mark, um, Mark Smith, I, I had him on the show, and uh, he 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 told me that this is something that he was really interested in learning. Interesting. I think it's circumstantial. I mean, I look around. I'm just going through data points in my head. I mean, I think I I think the way I'd answer your question is this: like, um. I've definitely seen environments where there was no system in place and people were succeeding. And what that, it's not that often, but like what that entails is you have to hire an exceptionally talented salesperson to be able to like proactively on their own come in and discover the information they need to know and figure all this stuff out on their own. Right. Um, I think you probably would be more apt to see that in very simple sales, commoditized sales. Um, trying to think of some examples. I don't know. Dunder Mifflin and the paper in the office. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Something like that. Right. It's like, you know, it's just you're relying on something more. But I think it's, it's not. So I think if you were to rely on that, you've very, you very much, um, uh, you have a very small talent pool that will actually make it mm-hmm. in there. Versus if you actually build the system and it's polished and repeatable and, and you're iterating on it, you've significantly expanded the talent pool because you can take people that arguably maybe haven't even sold before and you can make them successful. Yeah. And I just think like, like nothing runs in perpetuity without changing. And so like, if you're just, if you don't have a system, you've got nothing to measure and you don't know when it's going to break, how it's breaking, why it's breaking, where it's breaking. Versus if you have the system, like I just went through this with a company that has yesterday that their sales have dropped by 30% since Q2. And we spent 45 minutes just diagnosing exactly where it changed. Like we went through all the buyer types, we went through all the stages, we went through all the salespeople, and we found a specific stage in a particular segment where it was off mm-hmm. and then started looking hard there. So without the system, how would you ever be able to do that? You're just kind of like, you'd have no idea how to diagnose it and fix it. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So, so 
It's an interesting question. I mean, maybe there's some situations where it's not worth building the system, but I, I personally just wouldn't be interested in doing that. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Let's, I want to start uh, closing things up. I think we're, we're getting close of time. Uh, I've got a couple more questions though for you. What, if you were an early stage startup and you have your product built and you want to start selling, but you haven't sold yet, what would be your first step? Um, <clears throat> haven't sold yet. I would actually take a very, I would continue what would feel like continuing on the customer research angle, even though I know that I'm, my intention is to sell. Okay. So what that means is I would not build a comp plan. I would not obsess over pricing model. I would not try to build a demand generation strategy. I would basically look at my personal network and the network of the people involved, whether it's my investors, my board, my current employees, and try to come up with a list of a few dozen people that are in our buyer segment that we know. And I would reach out to them with basically saying, Adam, you know, I know that you are a VP of HR at this company and that you know John, our investor. Um, we have been researching how modern companies today are trying to build morale within their organization. And we're developing product around that. Would you mind if I conducted an interview on you to learn how you've been thinking about this? And so I'm going in with a very, like, at this stage that like you're explaining to me, Adam, right? This is, you know, I, yeah. like, that's how I would approach things at this point. And, and I'd go in and do that interview. Now, it, it, interestingly, that interview while, while the intention is like, Adam, so um, as I said, you know, Dan, our investor, like introduced us, like we've been doing a lot of research and we're building product around helping organizations drive morale. Can you talk a little bit about your culture, you know, your role as an HR executive? Um, you know, how much do you focus on culture development versus attrition versus benefits versus recruitment uh, within the world of culture development? Like, how do you think about it? How do you define your culture? Do you guys measure your morale? What's your attrition rate? Is that problematic? Is it good? How have you tried to solve it? That's my interview. That's the same thing as a discovery call. It's a qualification, yeah. Two years <laughs> late. It's the exact same thing. Like, literally, if we forward fast the clock five years and we have 50 salespeople and they're doing a great discovery call, it's the same conversation. Yeah. All right. So now the only difference is like, I can get away at that point to get every single meeting because I went through a referral and I positioned myself as an innovator doing research. I can't do that when I'm like five years in and, you know, 10 million in revenue and I'm teaching a 23 year old salesperson to do that. Right. It's like, but I can do that right now. And then it's a little bit different as it changes. Like, okay, so Adam, thank you for the information. This interview has been so helpful to me. Basically, what you told me is your attrition rates doubled, your recruitment process, your cost per recruiter is doubled. You're, like, you're getting comp competition for the tech firms. You can't, you know, it's all the stuff we just talked about. And it's like, so, and incidentally, we've developed the beta uh, product that solves this problem. And, um, you know, we intend to sell it for, you know, and I could start telling, show them what it is. Like, here's what it does. It essentially, does like a, you know, a quick survey on this to measure around and does this with the glass door reviews and here's what the product does. And I'm, the way our model works is we're going to sell this for $50,000 a year. Right now, we're just looking for five beta customers um, to help us bring it to the next level. And we're going to give them 90% off for the first year. So we're going to sell it to, to these five customers for $5,000. We hope that they're getting extreme value by doing that. We're obviously getting great feedback, and we hope that they are on the edge of pioneering better morale and culture development because of that. Yeah. So would you be interested in being one of those beta customers? Now, if they say no, I can dive into a whole... Now, I'm just still in the interview. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. Okay, so this is interesting to me. Help me understand, because you just talked to me about this, that, and the other thing, and this is a big problem. So I'm, I'm just, just from my own, you know, venture of trying to get this venture going, what is it that you're hesitant about with, with not being one of our $5,000 beta customers? 
you know, and again, we're just selling. We, we, we're, we're in it what looks like an interview, but it really is a sales process. And it's just a perfectly positioned one because I didn't have to invest time in demand gen. I, released, I realized on, I relied on referrals. It's set up in a perfect discovery call. I still am learning anyway because I still got to learn. And I don't need to optimize for profitability at this point. I just need to get some committed customers to try my product so I can prove that I can get to customer success. Yeah. And so I'm not going to get a committed customer if I give it to free, for free. Yeah. They're just like, yeah, yeah, give it to me. And then I'm never going to do anything. <laughs> I need to put a little bit on the line, but it doesn't have to be solved for profitability. Yeah. Okay. So hopefully that's some guidance of like, that's my first step in selling when I'm turning that corner. Fantastic. What's a question that you wish more companies uh, and more people would ask you? Um, <clears throat> I think it's like, how do I know if I'm ready to scale and how fast? You know, I think, I think too many of them are assuming. They're just like, their question is more like, I'm just, I, I'm about to hire five reps and I don't know how to design the comp plan. Or like, I don't know how to like, I'm hiring this BDR and I don't know the good cold calling tactics. Or like, I think our pricing model is off. I think we should increase prices, but I'm not sure how to think about it. And it's like, I can't just answer that question. I have to back up for like an hour. And then at the end of the day, it's like, you're not ready for that question. You know, so I think, I think it probably stick, take a step back and say like, you know, I just, I'm having trouble thinking about whether I'm ready to scale now or scale faster. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Cool. Mark, uh, really appreciate your time here. I know our, our audience is going to get a lot of, a lot of good tips from here and a good actionable insight. Last thing, what are you up to nowadays? I mean, are you, you're still involved with HubSpot, you said, on the advisory board. What else? Yeah. Yeah, so I think my life is falls into like two big buckets of um, I, I'm on the faculty at Harvard Business School, and I teach uh, two classes here, one in the fall, one in the spring, on sales, marketing, and entrepreneurship. It's a lot of fun. It exposes me to a lot of like great opportunities and, and, and super smart students, super smart people to continue to codify the world of sales and entrepreneurship. And then the rest of my half is just spent helping entrepreneurs. Um, so I do a lot of investing uh, these days, um, uh, specifically around the go-to-market um, development side. Um, I do a lot of advisement work along those lines um, and really trying to tackle these questions um, around, you know, when is it right to scale and how do we do it? And I think like one perspective that didn't really tease out here, it did in a way, but just to simplify it, is when I look at these opportunities, if we do like a two by two matrix where the X is how fast you're growing revenue and the Y is your customer retention. Mm. Like everybody wants up here, great growth and great retention. Believe me, I do too, but you can't find them all here. And if you had to choose a different box to be, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of investors prefer this box high revenue growth with mediocre customer retention. But I much prefer this box. Really get great customer retention, really get great customer value creation with mediocre growth. Because in most cases, it's a lot easier to go this way than it is to go this way. Yeah. And so I think, I just think we're not getting it as an entrepreneur ecosystem right now. And and that's like a lens through which I'm, I'm focusing in my investments and, and, and advisory work. Interesting. How, how can somebody uh, reach out to you? Yeah, just LinkedIn's fine. I mean, I, I have a, if you Google me, you'll find my faculty page at Harvard. There's an email button you can press and that comes to me. Uh, you can message me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm checking it usually every day um, uh, and, and we can communicate there. Good. Mark, uh, again, thank you very much. You bet. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit StartupSalesPodcast.com or email StartupSalesPodcast at gmail.com. 
All right, Mark, let's finish things off uh, with cool. five, five last questions. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Uh, and not your own. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I'm staring at a whole wall of them right now. I got to go with Spin Selling, man. It's just the tried and true. I mean, I, there's a bunch of them here that I'm looking at. There's a lot of my you know, favorite people I've learned from. But I think, I think Neil Rackham, he just, he's done the best at like codifying the importance of understanding your buyer understand the implications around their needs and pain. Um, I think it's, I think it's been the, the biggest movement around, around how to sell. Excellent. Do you have somebody that you follow or read uh, for sales and leadership advice? Um, not anyone in particular. I mean, I read almost everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think like who lately I guess I'll throw out a really up and comer right now as I love the gone.io stuff, G-O-N-G.io out of San Francisco, just because, I mean, what they do is um, they, um, and I don't have any stock or anything in there. I'm just saying I actually do really like them. Um, they have a tool, like, a, I guess you call an AI tool that listens to sales calls and codifies like who's talking and how much and what they're talking about. And they've just spit out amazing research on the best practice of selling that is based on statistical analysis of hundreds of thousands of sales calls. And so it's just, it's just something that the industry needs is we've got all these, um, these anecdotes about what works. And it's really hard to understand if that's, that's like an N equals one, like experience in one sector, one buyer at one time of the, of time versus like an aggregate view. And that's why I really love the gone.io stuff. Is, is just looking at some of the analysis they're, do, they're doing. The CEO is uh, going to be speaking in a couple of weeks uh, here at an event. So I'm going to go, oh, cool. uh, go speak to there. Awesome. Um, great. Are you available 24 seven? Mm, no. <laughs> were, were you available 24 seven? Yeah, pretty much. I don't know. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, you know, and part of my decision to be an entrepreneur was it was the only career path that I saw where I could be a great family member, dad, husband, or at least be the one I wanted to be. I wanted to know my children, them to know me, et cetera. And at the same time, not sacrifice the, my career, not sacrifice what my career could have been uh, financially from an impact perspective, et cetera. And so even in the heart of HubSpot, um, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, I work from 7am to 1am. Wednesday and Friday, I left the office at 3.30. Yeah. I was home for like school pickup dinner. And on the weekend, I never worked when my kids and my wife were awake. Like they both went to bed at like 7.30 and I cranked till like midnight, <laughs> Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Yeah. Right. Family so family time is family time. Right. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I was working my house off. I was working 70 to 80 hours a week, but I was home for dinner. If not before walk in the park every Wednesday, Friday, and I was with them every waking hour of the weekend. Now I arguably, I slept in a little bit on Saturday and Sunday here, there more so <laughs> than like when they were working, waking up at 5am, my wife carried the, you know, carried it there and she would go to bed a little early. And if the kids woke up at like, 11 for feeding i would take care of that um <laughs> so we had our partnership but for most of the waking hours on the weekend i was there and and now now it's the, the great thing about life now teaching not being a full-time operator in in uh in um you know entrepreneurship i have even more time which i'm so grateful for and it's probably the best outcome of entrepreneurial success is to to have that earlier in your life fantastic Last uh, next question. Uh, you kind of actually already answered this. Uh, what is your favorite tool used for sales? Uh, so yeah, I, I know it would be HubSpot, but the after that, I'm, I'm guessing is Gong. Yeah, I like. I've never got to use it, um, but yeah, that's a that's a good one. I, I'll stick with that. I just I wish that was around when I was when I was leading a team because I would have had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, 
Fantastic. Last question. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders or uh, early stage uh, sales out there? Hmm. I would say um, I probably uh, observing a lot of different people who've succeeded that is just the relationship with failure is so important. And I think that is the biggest outcome that of, of whether someone ultimately succeeds is the people that, that won big never even necessarily considered they would fail. And what would be perceived as failure by most people was simply an iteration, right? So it's like, they don't get down that they went out there and it didn't work, but most what, what they did is they extracted the learnings and in, and in, you know, listen to it, reflect it, and iterate it to the next. And that could mean within this current venture, and it could mean cleaning it up, shutting it down, and doing the next one. Yeah. And that's like the great thing in entrepreneurship is, yes, when we look at entrepreneurship and the failure rate in isolation of one venture, the failure rate is extraordinary. But when we look at the success and failure rate of entrepreneurship as an entrepreneur, who cycles through many pivots and many iterations, it, it actually is, a, is, is, there's a great success rate. And so that's, that's what you've got to, your, your relationship with failure and your ability to move on and to learn is, is really the key to ultimately succeeding and impacting the world in the way you want to do it. Fantastic. Learn from failures and uh, don't let it stop you. Mark, again, thank you. Uh, it's great having you. Great. Thanks, Adam.